It will come from Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. We have the privilege of having our pastor David Kim preach the word for us this morning. And he's going to be focusing on verse 23. But so that we know the context, let's start with verse 21. I'll read that for us. Verse 21 through 23. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has now been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Good morning, Renewal. Um, my name is David Kim. I am one of the pastoral staffs here in charge of youth and college ministry. And I have the privilege and the pleasure, as well as the honor for me to stand here to enjoy this opportunity to preach and wrap up our Advent series. Uh, we've been doing something uh, quite fresh this year, where rather than looking at Jesus as a nativity story, just baby Jesus coming and that story, uh, those philosophers, come, the shepherds coming and all those people, but we rather wanted to see who this actual person was that came, who Jesus is that came. And through Colossians 1, uh, verse 15 to 22, uh, we've really covered, basically, almost exhaustively, we tried to cover who this person is and what he's done. We talked about how he's a creator of the world. He's a preeminent son He's the sustainer of the world. He's a reconciler. He's the king. We talked about all of that. And today, uh, we talk about verse 23. So in other words, we got to cover this grand scale version of who Jesus is. That's actually the Christmas message that we wanted to get at, right? It's about Christmas. It's about Jesus Christ, not this one a uh, red-suited, white-bearded, omniscient guy who is supposed to know everything and gives you present. I'm talking about Santa Claus. Uh, no kiss here. <laughs> oh, um, but anyways, um, it's not about that person. And I think I've been doing a bit well in at least teaching that content to my kids this message until a few days before Christmas. Because I woke up one day before Christmas uh, I don't know when, a few days before, and I woke up and the vibe in uh, the room was different. I woke up, usually it's gray and dull because my five and seven-year-old kids are arguing about something. They could argue about literally anything. They have the ability to do so. And when they do, uh, the room becomes gray, dull, very depressing. Uh, it's a regular life, but this day, it was orange. It was bright, glistening with joy. So I was wondering what's going on, and I heard giggling. So I went up to the dining table. They were sitting down talking to each other. Five, seven-year-old kids talking to each other joyfully and just writing something down, doing something, laughing. So I said, is this Christmas? Is this Christmas miracle? I, I snuck up and saw what they were doing. They were writing something. So I asked, hey, guys, uh, what are you guys doing? And Jean, my daughter, said, uh, oh, we're, we're writing a list uh, to send to uh, Santa Claus, a wish list that we should email to Santa Claus. Hey, do you know the email to Santa Claus? 
That's what she said. That, so, so multiple levels I was surprised. One, impressed, email. That's high tech, that's, that's new stuff. Um, Santa Claus, mind you, two years ago, she literally denounced Santa Claus. She said, I don't believe in Santa Claus. Now she's saying, we got we to gotta send this to him. So my seminarian blood kind of too quickly kicked in. I was like, hey, guys, what's, what's Christmas about? I tried to be as gentle and approachable as possible. Hey, what's Christmas about? The moment I said it, Jean almost like straightened her back and started saying, the, the true gift of Christmas is Jesus Christ and the salvation on the cross of our... Her, the glistening of the joy in her eyes started disappearing. Her, her focus in her eyes were just... She was going somewhere else. And it hit me because there was something missing, obviously. That was the content. It, the content of what she was saying was remarkable. She was basically confessing the faith that I hold my life onto. But the absence of something, the joy, there was no joy. In fact, what I've seen was, second ago, she was actually joyful, bright with true sense of desire, yearning, and anticipation of that presence that she was thinking about. True source of joy to the confession of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it was gone. And what broke my heart was not that it was happening to her. Of course, that broke my heart, but at the same time, what broke my heart was I resonated with that too often. I grew up in a Christian home, and every time in Christmas, thinking about that right answer, who Christ is, what he's done, but that distance, what's going on? How is that fact? In fact, we we call it the gospel, the message of the good news that our Savior came and saved us and loved us. Where's that emptiness coming from? The joy that's absent I think Paul saw that, actually. He anticipates that almost when he explains that who Jesus is and what he's done in Colossians 1, 15 to 22. He says, this is what he has done even to you. When you were sinners, he's saved you. He reconciled you. And he says, I know what you're thinking. Right, what about today? What about what's going on right now? Verse 23. That's what we want to take a look at today. I want us to take a look at verse 23 uh, in three points. I called it the three C's. It's the compliance to the gospel, completion of the gospel, and the continuance of the gospel. Compliance to the gospel meaning there is an appropriate response to the content of the gospel. Second point, completion of the gospel, is that actually it's God himself who completes that part of the gospel too. That sanctification. Third, continuance of the gospel where it's actually a progress. It's a continuance in our lives to see an active application of Jesus Christ himself in our lives. So with that, uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, Almighty, who loved us, who came for us, who died on our own behalf, 
for our sins, who won against death and sin, and who unites us into him, where we have access to eternal life. Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us to that point, but you tell us that this is applicable every day in our lives, that you show such walk with you, in such union we have with you, that we get to enjoy such growth and faith in you. So Lord, we ask that through this scripture that you would speak to us this morning, that you would speak truth to our hearts, our dull hearts, our renewed hearts, our weak hearts, that you would speak to us so that you would provide strength in us, faith in us, hope in us, only grounded in Jesus Christ. So Lord, be with us and be glorified through this. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So first point, I said compliance to the gospel. What is the appropriate response to that gospel message that we heard? This description uh, that we heard from Advent series 15 to 22. And he says, verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This is following Paul's previous statement, which is that very summative gospel message. While we were sinners, Jesus Christ has saved us through him. Then Paul says, if indeed you do this and not do that. That word here, if indeed, this form of this phrase in Greek isn't actually trying to make this part, this faith, our doing as the one that's conditional to what our salvation is dependent on. It's not talking about that. It's actually talking about, Paul is actually pretty confident in the validity to Colossians' faith. The Colossian church believers, he's pretty confident that they will continue in the faith and no doubt is expressed. Rather, he's saying this is very heavily related, very important to see. That is actually what it looks like in the descriptions I have given you about the salvation in Christ. What does that look like today? Paul tells us that we're saved in Christ. We're becoming one with Christ. And he puts that in two forms of description in today's verse. Positive version, negative version of the same message. Continuing in the faith, that's the doing. And not shifting from the hope, that's the not doing. And that's the response that we should give to the message of the gospel. Who Christ is and what he's done. That's our response. So let's really look at what, entail, what is entailed there, and also how successful we are doing that. First, it says here, the faith. Continue in the faith. Not just a faith. It says, a particular faith, intensity of how much we believe in something. That's not just it. It's actually on something, which is, as we know, Christ Jesus. It's the faith in Christ. Uh, for us, uh, our church, we actually have a nice written version of this thing. We call it a, a confession of the faith. We go Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, also, it says continuing. That indicates that this is after we accepted Jesus. This already started, so we now see this as what we call, we want to call it sanctification, theologians call it, the process of Christian life. So this is about Christian life. What does it look like? What does sanctification look like? He says it's, it looks like continuance in faith. And Paul says continuing this faith, stability, 
with stability and steadfastness. When he's saying stable and steadfast, these are actually metaphors that uh, indicate of strength and security used in connection with the house. It's a very similar metaphor that Jesus himself uses in Matthew 7 when he says, house built on a sand versus on a rock, a firm foundation. So when he's saying, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, he's saying, be firmly grounded in that faith. Firm ground, a firm foundation. Why is a firm foundation important? If you're an architect, you would know better than me, but I'm not an architect, and I still know the importance of it. Firm foundation. But I did some research, and there's an instance that actually uh, tells us the importance of a firm foundation. In Tokyo, Japan, there was a building called Imperial Hotel that was built in 1890. And in 1923, 30 years after, Frank Lloyd Wright, an American architect, was asked to rebuild the hotel. And he spent a whole two years just working on the foundational structure of it. And he received criticisms. Many architectural professionals criticized him for spending too much money, too much time on the foundational ground. But he continued on, uh, spending a whole four years to finish the construction. And so the School of Architecture at that time in Japan really wanted to nail that as an example of a kind of an unsuccessful work because of the unbalanced uh, imbalanced, uh, investment in the foundation work and how long the construction took. But the grand opening date, which was September 1st of 1923, was actually the same day of the Great Kanto Earthquake in Japan, which was only a 10-minute earthquake, but it had a magnitude of 7.9, causing death to 142,000 people and 37,000 people missing. 109,000 buildings were completely demolished, and 102,000 buildings were severely damaged. But there was one building that stood in the middle of that, the Imperial Hotel. So this is the telegram that was sent to Frank Wright, the architect. The hotel stands undamaged as monument to your genius. Hundreds of homeless provided by perfectly maintained service. Congratulations. So Frank Wright became a legendary figure in the Japanese architecture, and that was known to heavily influence the shift of Japanese architecture to focus much more intensely on the foundation of the building. This is an illustration of why having a firm foundation is important. Why? Because it protects stability. It, it protects people. It provides peace. Firm foundation. This is what Paul is saying. He wants the Colossians to build their house of their souls on a solid foundation in the faith, which is the, object, which is the object of Christ himself. He wants Colossians to build on Christ himself. That's what we should do. And then he says, we must not shift from the hope. Once again, this says the hope, and then it says the hope of the gospel. Not just a hope, not a wishful thinking or something, not an intensity of just wanting something to come, but a specific hope for, for an object, Christ himself. He calls it the gospel that was proclaimed to the whole world. This is, again, not shifting focus on Christ himself. The hope of the gospel is Jesus. The object of faith is Jesus. object of hope is Jesus. 
the content of what we, cont- uh, what we talked about in the Advent series. That He is the Creator. That He is Almighty. That He is that powerful. That He is the King, Savior, and the Sustainer. That's the hope of our lives. That's what Paul is telling us to not shift our focus on. But why do we need to hear this? Why did Paul have to say that before just ending it in verse 22? He could have just said, that's what it was. That's what it is. Accept it. Moving on. But he said, therefore, in in his case, he said, if indeed you continue in the faith, holding on to Christ and not shift your vision in hope, you must do that. Why does he say it? Because we will shift. Because we will shake. Because too often we found our ground on something else than Christ. Life on this earth is very windy and quaky. Earthquakes. Besides California, we have lots of spiritual earthquakes that hit us, that shake us from the core from the bottom of our hearts. It could be from outside. It could be from within. It is filled with winds. It doesn't require more than one careless comment of our beloved ones to just break our heart, to shake our peace. Various kinds of temptations lurk around to make us sin. Financial stability is a big one, considered a common problem that has yet to lose its power to destroy to peace in our hearts. Human frailty is devastating. Human frailty, our weakness, from a benign but a devastating projectile vomits on a Christmas Eve to a... I, uh, that was my son on this last Christmas Eve. Here, right there, so sorry. <laughs> to... That's, that's still benign. He's alive. Praise God. He is live and well. He, he is complaining about food again. The day after he starved. And he said, I don't want to eat. But human frailty, that's benign at least. From that to just the unexpected, life threatening cancers that could drag down the hearts of a family and of the church to the bottom of the pit. Just shake us. Whether it's from outside or from within. All kinds of winds and quakes, they shake the core foundation of us. In these moments, what's the cornerstone that you hold on to? Where are you grounded? Is it Christ? Is it that faith? Are you shifting your focus from that hope of Christ? Too often, I say no. Too often, I find something else that I'm actually finding my ground, that I'm actually firmly grounded on, just something else than Christ, something that brings me stability, Something that brings me hope and joy. To my daughter, the source, very briefly, was a puppy. Because in that list, there was a puppy. Uh, that wish list. It said, she even named it Puffy. And I'm, my heart breaks to know that Puffy will never exist. <laughs> she doesn't know that too much yet, as much as I and my wife know. But that hope isn't coming. To my son, five-year-old, it was Pokemon card. Still now, Pokemon card. There's this shiny thing called GX. It's ridiculous, but it's, that's his hope. Only if I have my hands on that, my life will be great. Then I will beat my sister in Pokemon. 
with that GX card. He can't even read. <laughs> can't do math. And he says, only if I have that shiny card, that piece of paper. Lo and behold, he found one on a mystery packet, only to be devastated by the fact that he wants another one. To find that void in the heart cannot be filled with that shiny card. Unfortunately, we're not too far off from such way of life, aren't we? For me, not more than two years ago, uh, my hope was just to get to the end of the tunnel called seminary. Just let me just graduate. Is this even coming? Finals are over? Still coming? Only to come out and realize that ordination coming. <laughs> more exams. Life is coming. What's your hope right now? What's the foundation of your faith? What is that thing that you're holding on to as if the coming of that would truly bring joy? Is it the long-awaited break? Christmas has now gone and now I'm pretty sure you could relate to how that didn't work. Is it the one week of family vacation? Or uh, one day without them? Was it the Christmas season? Was it your children to become more mature? To listen to you? To be more grateful to you? Maybe I'm talking too much of myself. Um, or was it the long-awaited spouse that'll take every problem away? Ten less pounds of fat in your body? Ten more? One more marathon to complete. What, what is it? What actually brings joy to you? What actually becomes the ground of your faith, your world? What do you look to as the hope of the salvation today? Not something with gray eyes that you confess outside, but what is that? And too often, unfortunately, that we find something else, we fail at this appropriate response to the gospel. And to that, what do we do when we fail that? That's actually the second point. The completion of the gospel is done by Jesus Christ himself. He has completed this part of sanctification also. In other words, this grounding of our faith and holding on to that hope, who does that? Jesus does that. The commentator puts it beautifully in terms of this sanctification, the author of Jesus doing that. He says, um, he says, we can only draw on resources which have already been deposited in our name in the bank. The whole of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation have, by God's gracious design, provided the living deposit of his sanctified life, from which all our needs can be supplied because of our fellowship, that union with him, we come to share his resources. This is why he can become for us sanctification, just as he is also our wisdom, righteousness, and redemption. It's a beautiful way to put it. A living deposit of a sanctified life in our name as given by Christ. We have access to that. Jesus says in John 17, just before he went to the cross, he said, sanctify the disciples by the truth as you sent me into the world. I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself 
that they too may be truly sanctified. He's talking about how we're united in Him, in the sufficiency that He provides. Other texts of Colossians is, are filled with this notion of completion. God has completed it. It's not that only if you do this, it's waiting, it's waiting to happen. No, it's done by Christ Himself. 2.10 says, And you have been filled in Him. Chapter 3, 1 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Verse 3 of chapter 3 says, For you have died. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our shorter catechism, that's our confession, also talks about sanctification as not our works, us changing into the image of Christ. That's not our works. It says sanctification is work of God's free grace. God's doing it. Powerful. So this work of the gospel is already completed, fulfilled by God. Firmly grounding ourselves in God, not shifting away from hope. That is God's work. Then, now we still come back to that reality, right? Then how does it actually look like if God's the one doing it? How does that founding our ground in Christ How does that not shifting from hope, how does that look like when God's the one doing that and that is our response that we should give? That's the third part. It's continuance of the gospel. The gospel is a progress. It's continual. It continues in our lives. It's actually a continual application, an active application of Christ in our lives. Continual application. Let's go back to first part of verse 23. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith. He says it's continuing the faith, not a brand new stage. He doesn't say if you have this new faith that you've never had. He says, if you continue in the faith, applying that this already has started when you accepted Jesus Christ and when you were renewed in our hearts. Christ has renewed us holistically, so now we continue living on. So it's not going to be a brand new novel New Year's resolution that's going to bring new light to your life. It's not going to be a new method, not new source that will bring true joy and this renewal in our life. It's Christ himself that continues on in our lives. It's the continuance of the same object of this faith and hope, Jesus. Recognizing that progressiveness, I think, brings us two things to think in our heads, two things to do with our hands. So two things in heads, two things in hands. I want to give you practical points. First, with our heads, if we see that this is a work of God that started before, then we get to recognize what has been done. And we get to give thanks to that. Good works that God has given us. Many times, even when things truly started and things are actually happening, I'm pretty sure you could relate to that it's hard to not be brought down by the fact that it's still not done yet. That's every time I look in the mirror. And even when I go to the gym every day and see my belly, is it not working? My calorie counting, is this all in vain? But rather, it's thanksgiving that I need to give, not for that not yet image, but the already being done, good works that has started. I'm going to the gym. I am counting calories. I am more faithful to God in that. 
That's me. I'm not telling everybody to count calories, but that's me. But for everybody, that Thanksgiving is required. When you look, at, when you look back at 2019, can you be filled with thanksgiving for the good works that God has started in you? The good things that you have not recognized yet. The continuing faith that continues on. Are we giving thanks to God? Second part with our heads is we could envision the future with hope. This is the reason why Paul uses two words, faith and hope. Another place that these words were used were in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith and hope. He says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith and hope point to something that can't be seen. But that's still true. Nonetheless, because of the giver of truth, promises it. Because he vouches for it. So faith and hope point to something in the future, not a tangibly present entity, but a futuristic reality nevertheless. That's hope. Substantial hope. So we get to envision something that's better than today. That's what gospel provides. Even if you don't have it, even if you're not as patient as you want with your kids, even if you are not that healthy, even if you are not that safe, even if fill in the blank, it's coming toward this final goal of our full union with Jesus Christ. Done something just much better, infinitely better than anything that we could fill in that blank with. It's coming. It's promised. That's the hope. That's the promise. That's Jesus Christ. So we could envision that in the future, become hopeful, and we could become more practical with those two things, two other things. So with those in mind, we could do two things with our hands. Actually, there's much more than two things. Uh, it's actually the rest of the Colossians. It's filled with very practical uh, directions. Do this, don't do that. Do that, don't do that. It's filled. So if you have time, uh, which I believe you do some t- someday, uh, please read Colossians. Uh, you'll be blessed. It's only four chapters. You could, only, you, you could read three because we've covered the first chapter. So <laughs> two, three, four is filled with... So for further instructions please refer to Colossians. But I'll give you two things that we could do. Two things I did get from Paul, but there's another uh, famous person on Netflix that successfully marketed this gospel methodology. And uh, I'm a believer of that methodology too, uh, not only because it resonates with gospel, but it works. Uh, This person is very well known on Netflix. Her name's Marie Kondo. Marie Kondo (laughs) It's a Japanese organizing consultant and author of four bestsellers on organizing one of her uh, organizing, and uh, she's a bestseller. Uh, her bestseller book uh, was published in more than 30 countries. She was listed as one of Time's 100 most influential people in 2015, and she remains one of the top 10 most influential people in my life. Um, but on Netflix, her series "Tidying Up with Marie Kondo." She visits various American family homes full of clutter and guides the families in tidying up their houses through, their, uh, through her unique method. She calls it KonMari method, KonMari in American, KonMari method. And let me tell you something, uh, before I met Marie Kondo, uh, I didn't know I was a hoarder. I didn't, I, I just thought my house was disorganized every day. And no matter how I tried, nothing happens. But when I met the God, uh, not the gospel, the KonMari method, 
I'm a believer of the method. It works. <laughs> it works. My life is never the same. But there's a striking similarity, a striking resemblance between what Paul's suggesting here and Marie Kondo. She says, if you've seen it, it, it will resonate with you. It's, she says, keep things that spark joy in you. You're supposed to keep the only things that spark joy in you. Parentheses, whatever that means. Sparks joy in you. That's, she's preaching the gospel. She doesn't know. I don't think she's Christian. Because every time she goes into a new house, she kneels down and prays to the house. So I'm assuming she's not a Christian. I think it's a safe assumption. But at least she's preaching the content of the gospel. But it's missing something. Because she says, spark joy of what? Actually, that's the criticism that I've read on the blog because, you know, I follow her. And uh, people say, what, what about, it doesn't work on me because everything sparks joy in me. <laughs> that sparks, so it's subjective as opposed to the gospel, which is objective. What is the true source of joy? It is the joy to the world that came to this earth, that came on Christmas. That is Jesus Christ. She's really missing Jesus Christ and that source of spark of joy. Maybe I'm going too far, but it really works on my hoarding physically. But Paul's pretty onto something when he's talking about how we're hoarders too, spiritual hoarders. We keep things that don't belong to us, thinking that they have some use someday, some value, even if it doesn't relate to the true source of joy, Jesus Christ. I started asking that question, does this thing spark joy in me? I had this item called a um, flexible long arm stand clip holder hanging on neck universal mobile phone stand, lounger's bracelet for mobile phone tablet PC desktop. That was the title and on Amazon. What it is, is uh, it's a metal thing that you put around your neck and you could mount your phone onto it. When I bought it, I, I said, what more things can be more brilliant than this? I wore it, and my wife and I had a good laugh because I was running around with it on my phone. But that was it. After that, I've never used it. It's this big, it's this metal thing lying around somewhere because I couldn't find a place for it. I found that it didn't spark joy in me. But did, before Marie Kondo, I didn't ask that question. Still laid around in our house. Every time I saw it, there was a gloom in our hearts, and uh, my kids would uh, stumble upon it. And I still didn't throw away, but it was KonMari method that saved me to donate that to somebody else that might need it someday. But she's, she's onto something, which is Paul's direction to declutter. He says in verse, six of, uh, verse 5 of Colossians 3, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he lists everything he can. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you because any creation in the world that is missing Christ is rubbish, garbage. Literally, the language that Paul uses in Philippians 3. He says, I count everything else as rubbish, as not Christ's. He lists these things that are rubbish. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And he goes on. He says, you got to get rid of all these things. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, and lying. You see how Christlessness make everything garbage? Christless parenting can easily bring anger. Christless desire could become lust. A Christless justice becomes malice. A Christless desire to enjoy God's creation becomes covetousness. We must declutter our spiritual home. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That's one thing you could do with your hands. Throw them away. Throw things that don't belong to Christ. What are those? What are those in your life? That you continue to go back and say, but I still have, I think I have some use of it. I think there's still validity to the goodness that I hold on to this. What is it? That's one thing we could do, declutter. Part two, if everything's empty, we're not actually going to the emptiness of religion. That's actually not what we're going for. If it's empty, there should be a purpose. We've got to fill it up with stuff, good stuff. That's the second thing we want to do. You've got to fill it up with good stuff now that, you've, now that you're getting rid of stuff. In other words, I want to say you've got to fill it up with Christ's stuff. That's what Paul says here. Colossians three sixteen to 17, he says, let the, word, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We got to fill it up with Jesus' stuff. Practically here, word and prayer. God's word and prayer. That's actually our public confession. Shorter Catechism, 89 to 90. What is God's word? What does it do? God's word not only convinces the sinner to be saved, it also builds us up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. This is why we're asked to here read God's word with diligence, preparation, and prayer. God's word the building block of that stability, that foundation. God's word is actually the instrument of this protection. It's the food, it's the nourishment, it's everything we need in Christian life. It's really wrong for us to assume that the absence of it could still bring joy in life. Even without scripture, we could still live as Christians. We need scripture. And I know, including myself, many times I do find myself saying, but I, I just find myself not being able to. I, I can't read the scripture. I, I don't have time. I, I can't because fill in the blank. But as one philosopher said on a long time ago TV series, uh, Friends, and her name is Phoebe Buffay, she said, uh, Ross asked something to her, like, could you do this for me? And she said, I wish I could, but I don't want to. And obviously I cracked up with my sister watching that, but at the same time, it was a concise and a blunt representation of our hearts, sinful hearts, when we say, I can't. It's actually because I don't want to. Many times I find myself, I can't read the scripture because I have no desire in me. I don't want to learn about Christ. It's not in me. That's where you get to realize that there's something else that you're holding on to. Something earthly in you that you got to put away actively. 
Because there's something else that's trying to take Jesus' place. So rather than saying, there's something else I need other than Christ, we've got to go back to Christ by getting rid of other things that don't bring true joy in us. Because this is when Jesus actually intervenes. And he says, no, that's not true. When you say other things bring me joy, that's actually not who you are. In fact, you're in me now. You're dead to sin. You're not dominated. You're not ruled by sin anymore. Those desires don't become your kings anymore. I'm your king. That's the message of the gospel. But that message needs to be heard by us every day. Every day, actively, day and night, through scripture, through prayer, through him, through this communion that we have, a Christian life. I'm not limiting that to just the action of reading the scripture. I'm talking about a living a life based on scripture. We've got to live our lives building ourselves on Christ. So let me conclude. There's an active and appropriate response to the gospel. But when we fail at them, Christ prevails. So in Christ, we continue to firmly ground ourselves in the faith, not shifting from his hope. We really got to see that theological difference here. The application of redemption versus an accomplishment. God has accomplished it, but it's being applied to us every day. It's being applied today. When you believed in Christ for the first time, we really truly changed of who we are. But why are we still here? Same thing, I guess I'm too obsessed with the KonMari method. Once I became a believer, I really became a different person. I don't want to hoard anymore, but the moment I opened my eyes and looked around, I was still in the same house, filled with those stuff that I need to get rid of. I'm a different person, but I'm living in the same house. I think Paul is speaking of the same thing when he says we're still living in the flesh, not yet consummated with Christ. So until then, when we're one with Christ in our soul, but still fighting with the flesh, we got to continue that fight. Galatians 5.17, he says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So we want to continue this battle. It's a battlefield. We want to patiently apply Jesus into our lives through Christ, through word and prayer, through thanksgiving and envisioning, through hope that comes from the gospel, we will really have to depend on Christ. And as we welcome the new year, may God bless you to continue in the faith to envision in a very practical sense what needs to be done today, what needs to be put away to put to death so we could grow in God. And if you're one of those that hasn't found your ground in Christ just yet, If that never started, I invite you to do so. It is true that Christ is the only source of that cornerstone, salvation, the foundation, the hope. And only when you are grounded in Him, rejecting all other things, holding on to Him, that's salvation. That's through that we get salvation. I pray that your heart changes to accept that. For the rest of us, I hope that continues in us. I hope our lives continue on what has already started, to hold on to Christ, to yearn for Jesus Christ, to hope for him. Let's pray.
Can we spend some time reflecting, spending this time reflecting on where our hearts are? What are some things that are still lingering? Source of death. The earthly things in you that still get in the way to hold on to Christ. What are those things? And when the wind of life hits you from every direction, and when it hurts, I truly pray that Jesus becomes the only source of that salvation, the only source of joy, foundation, the stability. Let's really pray for Christ to intervene and dictate our hearts, lead our hearts to found ourselves in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for the message of the Advent, the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to go through everything that we go through and to die on our own behalf and to save us from the dominion of death and sin. Lord, we thank you for such truth, a cosmic truth. But Lord, we also thank you for applying that to us in our daily lives. Becoming our ground, our foundation, becoming our hope. But Lord, too many times, if not every day, we are shaken. Lord, we are swayed to and fro from all kinds of winds and waves. Lord, hold us tight. Ground us tightly to you, Lord. Give us the faith in you and hope in you. Lord, let us take active guidance of the Holy Spirit every day. To firmly be stable into your salvation. Provide, provide safety, Lord. Provide comfort for those who are struggling. Lord, please provide peace to us. Lord, remind us who Christ is.